0: Really quickly before we get started here, I wanted to let you know the reason for the gap in episodes, and that is because for this week's episode, I put together an audio-visual presentation of this on YouTube, and it took me admittedly longer <laughs> than I thought that it would. Therefore, if you're able to watch something right now, I highly encourage you to go to youtube.com forward slash Amy to check it out. I'll also put the link in the show notes below. So in the last episode, we explored the question, can we learn how to be less depressed? And I want to ask you if you've noticed the assumption in that title, because that assumption is pretty much the assumption we hear all the time. Whether it's advice from friends and family, whether we're trying out an evidence-based psychological technique, the assumption generally is, That uncomfortable sensations, so what we label as negative emotions or thoughts, are something that we should try to avoid or control or get rid of. But what if that approach to living is actually only one small piece in the greater puzzle of what it is to be a human being. If you're ready to dive deep with me today, let's get into it. You are listening to what we should have learned in school. So on my website, it says that I teach an educational framework for mental health. And sometimes this is referred to as subtractive psychology. So what does that really mean? It means that Instead of adding more things that you should do to improve, quote unquote, or fix yourself in your life, it focuses on the question, who is the self that you're trying to fix anyways? Instead of me sitting in an office while you lay down on the couch and tell me your problems and I give you my personal opinions and advice about what you should do with your life, this conversation focuses more on facts and it focuses more on unlearning actually, all of the opinions and advice that cover up those fundamental facts of being human. So after all, you can't fix a clogged drain by putting more things down the sink. You have to dissolve the initial cause of the clog first. And that's what this conversation is all about. I was listening to a man named Michael Neal a few weeks ago, and I think he put this perfectly. Now, before you say that Michael is some kind of guru or enlightened guy, If you listen to his personal story, which I do recommend, I'll put it in the show notes below, he struggled for decades with depression and anxiety and crippling suicidal ideation. But the way that he conceptualizes health now is so much different than how he did before. What if we not only have a physical immune system, but a built-in psychological immune system per se as well? Now, if we look at the physical piece first, we think that things that are uncomfortable, things that we often call illnesses or feeling sick, such as vomiting or having diarrhea, for instance, that these examples of sickness are actually, in truth, examples of your physical health at work. After all, vomiting or diarrhea is a way for your body to get rid of the toxins within it. We're really getting to the, the nitty gritty today with this example. But for instance, even, even one study showed that using an antidiarrheal medication may actually interfere with the natural ability of the human immune system and the intestine to do its job and get rid of the pathogens in someone's body. And then, you know, Michael gave a couple other examples too, like having a fever. Of course, this is your body's way of trying to kill the bacteria. That is one theory of having a fever. So what was Michael getting at and what am I getting at here? That the physical discomforts that we often refer to as sickness, such as vomiting, diarrhea, fever, runny nose, are in truth the result, are in truth an example of our physical health working. And so, what if the uncomfortable emotions, the things we call mental illness, mental sickness, the things we habitually try to stop ourselves from experiencing, such as sadness or anxiety or panic or depression or insecurity and self doubt, what if those are actually related to our underlying mental health? What if they're an example of our mental health at work? Now, you may be listening. And your jaw might have dropped to the floor because we don't think of emotions and symptoms of mental quote unquote illness this way. But what if, for example, in some cases, depression is actually our mental health at work and it's a way for our health to counteract the debilitating side effects of chronic anxiety, a way for our system to reset A way for us to look inward because research has linked that there are positive attributes of depression too. We can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we use when we created them. Now, that's attributed to Einstein, and who knows if it's really something he said, but we aren't encouraged to look at life in this way. We often don't recognize or we completely ignore our innate mental health. We very rarely. Collectively, look at the existence of a psychological immune system. We very rarely focus on a core trait of humanity, and that is resilience and adaptability. Think about it. Of course, we don't talk about being human in this way because from a young age, most likely, the people around you tried to get you to stop feeling quote unquote negative emotions like sadness or anger right away. But when we think about this, really analytically here, it's a bit weird, isn't it, to artificially always try to control human nature. Because it seems to me that human beings are built to experience a wide range of emotion and sensation. That is how we are built. And how I know that is because if that wasn't so, we wouldn't experience so much variety in our day-to-day lives, but we do. We experience all sorts of thoughts and emotions and sensations. And even research has highlighted that resilience, not recovery. So I'm not talking about a lengthy healing period here. That resilience is natural, and it's actually a common response of human beings who are exposed to potentially traumatic events. What? Amy is full of crap. What you're saying can't be true, right? If what I'm saying is true, then why are so many people in therapy? Why are so many people on antidepressants? But we've already kind of answered that question because instead of focusing on our health or our resilience, our natural ability to adapt and move forward and evolve, we've been trained to do the exact opposite. We talk about our problems to the point of obsession. Then we try to fix other people's problems by getting them to talk about their problems. And then we ruminate on what's wrong with us. And we collectively ruminate on what's wrong with the world. And we try to control and control and control. And we try to control others. And we try to control our feelings and our thoughts and our energy. And we don't see that all of that effort all of that cycling around, running around, looking for tips and techniques and ways to manipulate ourselves and our environment and people around us, we don't see that ironically, the more we try to do that, the more out of touch we tend to be with our natural ability for mental well-being. We don't see how we are unintentionally keeping our upset alive by constantly attempting to manipulate how we feel or avoid how we feel altogether. So I ask you today, what would happen, what could happen if you stop putting so much attention on your personal problems and your personal stresses? What could happen if you're able to just zoom the lens out just a tiny bit to look more at the bigger picture, to look at the human system in general, because I've seen that no matter where people come from, no matter what horrible things happen, no matter what diagnosis a person is presented with at a certain point in their life, that actually we are never truly separated. We never truly lose the ability to access that psychological state of greater freedom that many of us remember when we were children. That natural state of being in life, that natural state of joy and love, and not a romantic or personal love, but a state of flow, a state when we were not so weighed down, by our problems and by our desire to control things and to plan every aspect of our lives and to fix ourselves and others and to chronically strive for goals and keep indulging in our expectations as if they are some kind of solid, absolutely true thing. Instead, today, I invite you to really look at the intelligence behind our systems, the miraculous intelligence of how we have been designed. And part of that intelligence is how our unique system guides us on our journey to find tools and techniques. There's nothing wrong with tools and techniques. But when you're coming from a place of lack and a place of wanting to fix versus a place of health, even merely acknowledging the physical and mental emotional health systems that are a part of you, even when you can't feel it It's a totally different place to come from. So my homework for you today is to recall a story of someone in your life or some person that you've heard about that has experienced great adversity, but who shows an example of this innate mental health occurring. And I'll give some examples in the show notes below. But it could also be someone in your life that maybe a year or two ago they were really overwhelmed by this certain problem and were so consumed and worried about it. And today they don't even recognize that as a problem. They can't even really remember it being a problem. You've been listening to What We Should Have Learned in School. I'm your host, Amy Leo. To continue this investigation, I encourage you to just click that subscribe button if you haven't already, because one simple click really could make all the difference. I'll talk to you again next time.